So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. The month is November. We're drinking a Mertzen. And we just watched a lot of Scorsese. We sure did. We have a full Scorsese slate today. But first, as always, we will dive into first impressions. Unless you'd like to tell the folks which Scorsese movies we're watching. Yeah, I, I could do that, I suppose. Uh, we're going to start with After Hours. Then we're going to go into Bringing Out the Dead, which was adapted by Paul Schrader. And then we're going to do The Irishman. Let's dive in. Which first impressions would you like to start with? Let's do the Safdie Brothers Uncut Gems. Let's do it. Is it too late? I'm done. It means nothing. It meant nothing. Please. Give me another shot. You like to win, right? This is no different than that. Black Joe Power, nigga. This is my fucking way. You think I'm stupid, Howard? You and your whole fucking family. I heard you resurface your fucking swimming pool. I, you know how that makes me feel? Never resurface I don't know who said that. All right, we just watched the trailer for the Safdie Brothers' latest Uncut Gems starring Adam Sandler, among others. What do you think? Yes. Yes, I do think. Uh, I think I'm going to like this more than Good Time. I've long been a proponent of Adam Sandler's qualities as a performer, not just a, a comedic writer and director. Um, you, you know, his movies certainly have taken a nosedive and maybe aren't something that I am thrilled by watching, but I've always um, thought that his maniacal output is is actually indicative of, of like a real artist and especially when he can create some of these characters just for a film um that are some of the most memorable characters even though a lot of them happened in his youth i still think that zohan is one of the most memorable comedic characters um, really oh yeah for sure Whoa. like he's up there with uh sasha baron cohen for me for creating like memorable com mm. comedic characters mm. that are people that that um we might improvise to make jokes with um, I might lean more towards an Andy Samberg myself, but but I do think that his work in that space is un, underappreciated and maybe underrecognized. Mm. Um, so, yeah, this is a team up that I'm thrilled by. He looks mm -hmm. as if he's trying to look like a softie. Mm -hmm. um, how about yeah, he you? He does kind of look like he might be the third brother right? that we never knew about or something like that. Yeah, I have not kept up with uh, Adam Sandler's comedic output of the last like five years. Um, but as you and listeners of the show would probably know, I loved Good Time. I loved Heaven Knows What. I am a big proponent of the Safdie Brothers. Very possible they'll be my like uh, my rising stars when we do our year-end list. Um, I think they have... I think they might have already risen a little bit too much, but okay. Oh, but I think <laughs> they have a long career ahead of them. I mean, I think in the grand scheme of things, you know, somebody who's two, three movies in is just getting going. Yeah, um, and I think they've very much uh, breathed new life into the crime film for me. Um, mm -hmm. The breakneck pace, just that unbridled energy, it just feels more alive to me than so many movies do. Um, 
I have to just try and not think about this movie too much to not get too excited. You want me to scare you a little bit? What's that? You know who they actually remind me of is early Cohen brothers. I do not see that. Say more. Um, they, they have a very clear tone that bleeds through. They, yeah. they, they kind of, they have something that they're doing that they, that they're going to do, but in there, you can see that, that they can tell other types of stories too. Like, I know that they can tell a different story than the crime story on the street, but that seems like where they're most comfortable. Like, I could mm. absolutely see them follow this up with a slapstick, Raisin Arizona-style comedy, or go really hard into something serious and, and more, um, you, you know, labored, um, like the the adaptation of that um, that book that they did with uh, Brolin. God, what's that book called? I just read it earlier this year. How can I not remember country for old men yeah yeah like mm. i i could i can totally see adaptations in their wheelhouse like you said they're developing mm. definitely rising but i think that they might have the breadth uh i i see a breadth of, of work in there that they haven't gotten to yet but i i, I see it developing mm. i certainly hope they continue to do more original screenplays i prefer that to adaptations myself um yeah, maybe it's just the the sense of pace um, that I get from something like Good Time relative to the Coens, which I think more about um, tension, kind of a slow build in tension, mm-hmm. whereas this is go, 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 such a breakneck kind of pace. Um, yeah, I mean, the but, timing's uh, different, but somehow underneath the idea isn't, right? There's, there's a mm-hmm. crime being committed and there's, you know, an adjustment that the characters have to make to that crime, whether it's Fargo or Blood Simple or what's that one mm. that we watched? Um, gosh, I think we watched one for the show that had um, the actor from Hereditary in it. And now his name is eluding me. Miller's Crossing? Yeah. yeah I have not did... seen Miller's Crossing. Oh, okay. Unfortunately. I thought we watched that for the show. Maybe I watched yeah. that because Film Spotting covered it. Uh, um, got it. But yeah, when, when I think about those crime movies, you know, maybe they don't have a breakneck pace, but they, they have their very own clearly defined worlds characters Mm. that seem larger than life but are totally confined to the film like there's Mm. there's just some patterns that for me is like there's strong storytellers happening here it just sounds like good storytelling yeah yeah but i mean like that's good that's just a good movie (laughs) maybe but there's i think there's very few brothers that do it consistently over time Mm. and i I, so i think that's where i I see the the comp because i can't tell which brothers directing Mm -hmm. with the cohen's and i for me, that's true of the softies. Maybe it's very obvious, but I, I don't know how to see it. Yeah. Well, Christmas Day release, so it'll be a Christmas present Merry to Merry Christmas to too. us. On to Midnight Family. Michael, that was the trailer for Midnight Family. What do you think? I would say it looks pretty thrilling for a documentary, but it might just look pretty th- pretty thrilling for any kind of movie. I think it looks pretty uh, interesting. Um, I get. I think it's probably been on my radar since um, Sundance, maybe way back uh, when I, I just somehow picked up that it, it had won an award. Um, but I have gone this far without knowing that much about it. Um, I think it looks pretty uh, interesting. What about you? Extremely intrigued. Very interesting. Like the look of it. Um, 
like the interrogation, like the subtext of the conversations happening in the trailer. Um, you know, it's it's essentially investigating what it's like to have the people that are supposed to save lives have to work in capitalism and in poor capitalism where there's no incentive for them to perform their job. Um, so they're providing a service without payment. Um, and then the system is demanding they pay to be able to provide the service. I find that very, very interesting. Um, so I, I'm extremely intrigued by this much more than I expected to be. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get to it for local listeners. It's at Northwest film forum in January. So it's coming around the corner. Good to know. We're diving into Martin Scorsese this week. You may have heard of him. He's known for his gangster films, but has made all kinds of great films. Primarily known for gangster films, but really his output, the least of them are gangster films. Mm. So it, it, it is interesting that that one genre is his peak genre. You know, um, what, what's your favorite gangster film from him? Probably the one we're going to get to later this episode. Really? I think so. Among Goodfellas, Mean Streets, The Departed, Casino. Gangs of New York. Obviously, there is... I haven't, I haven't seen Gangs of New okay. York. There is obviously some recency bias at play here. Um, but for reasons we will most definitely get to, I think uh, Irishman would prob- probably be towards the top. Um, what about you? I think that I'd go with Gangs of New York. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Um, but if it wasn't that, it would absolutely be The Departed. Um, I think Irishman is kind of back down with the other um, of that era gangster films for me, which I'm just not as interested in. I grew up with Casino, love Casino, but Casino next to Departed, I'm picking The Departed every time. And then Gangs of New York is, there's just some mystique about that historical gangster film and, and how special watching John C. Riley and Daniel Day-Lewis and Leonardo DiCaprio and Cameron Diaz bring to life this most deadly of corners in, uh, what was that, 1890s New York or some, whenever, was it 1790s or 1890s? I honestly don't know. Yeah, I can tell you. But, yeah. But we're starting with... Uh... Some exceptions to the rule, perhaps, when mm-hmm. people think of Scorsese's filmography. We're starting with 1985's After Hours. I'm what? So now she's the one in the Mr. Softy ice cream truck who's trying to kill me. They're all trying to kill me. I mean, I just wanted to leave. You know, my apartment, maybe meet a nice girl. And now I've got to die for it, you know? What do you want from me? What have I done? I'm just a word processor. After hours, when anything can happen, and usually does. Is that unbelievable or what? I thought this movie absolutely ruled. Where do you stand on it? I didn't go so far as you went to say that um, it drooled. But I I think this one rules... Bringing out the dead, which we will get to, drools. I I definitely which is a little strong, but lean other than that. Um, I think that the reason the movie's good is because the movie's good, and Sorsese as a director makes it good. Um, and that the Pretty writing reason. isn't there. <laughs> and the what? I don't think the writing's there for this mm. film. Whereas I think Bringing Out the Dead, the writing is there. Mm. Um, and that's maybe the difference, the major difference for me, but, um, I really liked this movie. I liked its moments. Um, I liked the way that the city block came to life, the surrealism, 
the underwater feeling of surrealism specifically, uh, where you don't quite know if reality is real or not and what the hell is happening and, and why the, uh, the 1960s gal with the, the, uh, gosh, what's that called? The, the beehive haircut Mm -hmm. is doing what she's doing. Um, the paper mache ending I thought was just fantastic. It absolutely crescendoed the film and, and raised it a full half star for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, w- let's start um, with the writing then. Hmm. Did you think it was well written? Um, I can tell you I greatly enjoyed it. So yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, I, I wouldn't criticize the writing. Okay. For for me there just there was um there wasn't so much anything there is the performers adding um in the silent moments mm. um particularly uh Griffin Dunn's face um k- kind of just communicating stuff that I didn't pick up on in just the dialogue line. Mm. Um no sometimes that's a sign of really good screenwriting but when I I dug into this um screenwriter's credits they mm. this one and done basically. Mm. Um, and we're about to get to another one where the novelist that Paul Schrader adapted bringing out the dead from was also essentially a one and done. He had a follow-up novel in 2003 that did not perform nearly as well. And, uh, I think there might be something interesting there to how Sorsese can take, um, maybe you'll disagree, but I think Sorsese can take, um, middle of the road, very interesting writing and turn Mm. it into an an incredible film. Cause I do Mm -hmm. think after hours is incredible. It's transformative. It, It takes the viewer on a journey with a character, but I don't know that the writing's there so much as the direction leading the voice of the piece. Mm. Yeah, to maybe speak less from my perspective about directing versus writing, I just thought the end product was very satisfying. Um, I would say this represents, for me, a direction that Scorsese did not go in, but is a side of him that I've never seen and very much liked Mm -hmm. that for me is somewhere in between David Lynch, because you kind of have to mention him whenever you're in In this this realm of surrealism. Um, But I would say somewhere between him and Jim Darmish actually, Mm -hmm. because I think the good call, the repetition, um, the um, sort of everyday feel of it, the eccentric characters, feels very much um like um night on earth or um i forget what one of those uh that student film of his that he made was um where a guy's also just kind of wandering through an empty new york interesting city. i was thinking dead man haven't seen dead man okay um but, very much wandering through yeah yeah um i don't think it's like lynch for me in that you know this is more vaguely surrealism. Like in any given scene in Lynch, something might true, something truly inexplicable might happen that is literally following following a dream kind of logic. Whereas this feels like there aren't you know inexplicable things going on. It's all just sort of dreamy in its general quality. In this, in what this night is, there's a strangeness to the sense that he is kind of trapped in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think there's humor to it. And I think um, it uh, taps into kind of the loneliness of people who um, uh, are looking for someone else to talk to. I think that's that's one of those things that we keep getting um, that, that is repeated is are people saying that they just want to talk. That's what the girl he 
goes on a date with says when he goes to make a move is can we just talk for a little while longer he ends up saying that to the uh lady in with the, the beehive club hairdo and and the lady with the hairdo um i think it's just about more uh mood and atmosphere and that kind of dreamy but funny quality um that you know to call it direction versus writing i can always kind of speak to the end product yeah yeah i i do think that the end product is maybe what i'm pointing to where for me it's it's the way that i read the film which very well could be incorrect is that the actors are doing a lot with the little and um mm-hmm or at least a little bit of writing and that there's a, a great bit of direction or an excellent use of instincts happening by the performers. Uh, the casting director deserves all the props in the world. Like she, she really cemented the film together. Um, I think that Arquette and um, gosh, what's that gal's name who only shows up for a little bit, but then she's leading the ice cream truck around yeah, um, yeah. from Schitt's Creek, you know, whom I'm talking about Moira from mm-hmm. Schitt's Creek. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. She is just uh, an excellent bit of casting to round out what is a surreal comedy at, at some level. Um, I I think that the the subtext of the film is where I, I don't know if Sorsese added something in or if that was in the screenplay originally, but that, that transformation of him um, kind of getting bored by that first girl and and kind of driven um away by that personality that that is very centered on herself and having him witness her and hear her story and that transfer to the end where girls are saying no to him um when he's trying to share his story i i thought Mm. that the slow transformation of that was really really well built Mm. yeah it's interesting um yeah for me I, i I, I kind of already said this, but it's partly just about that that sense of feeling kind of trapped. Like, I don't think it's coincidental that we start out in his office, right? Um, and it's clearly not the most exciting of uh, workplaces. His title is simply just word processor. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this sense of um, just feeling sort of an existential sense of entrapment, I think, is what this is getting at for me. Which, I mean, to me... That's a good. That's, that good. seems right. That seems writerly to I'd me stick in a way. With that existential entrapment, just yeah. you got it. <laughs> Let's move on to the next one. You summed it up in two words. But I think it's like that sounds like like it's full of despair or something like that. I think it's super funny. Um, well, it's right like that two term phrase existential entrapment, right? Like that's illustrated by the gate that closes uh, as he's walking through it. The gate that opens mm-hmm. when he shows up after his casting is shattered by being thrown out the back of the van or the truck or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Like those are the two moments that cement that as being true. And you know, that life that he lived inside of it, it didn't change anything. Mm. Is that other interesting part to that existential entrapment that nothing changed portion of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the locations and just how kind of lived in they feel, Um, you know, from the, spacious kind of boho loft that the date and her artist paper mache artist girlfriend live in to the to the diner to the go girl 60s go go girls apartment i Mm -hmm. think they're just interesting places that they just have kind of you know some lived in texture to them source says he's never been known to not bring new york to life most definitely um i think even that 
paper mache figure that we see the artist making feels sort of like a like a um, projection of how he kind of feels. You know, that guy looks like he's in this this position of despair. Um, I mean, he even specifically says like, "Oh yeah, it's like that Edward Edward Munch painting." Mm-hmm. Um, just just nice touches like that. Um, yeah, and I think the lynching and stuff even kind of comes in when you start to feel like these things are kind of interconnected, right? Because of the blonde having a tattoo that matches the keychain that the bartender has, you know. Or the stuff. subtext of the painting that you just referenced being fire and the burn victim stuff and the book and the cream. and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when you think of Twin Peaks, like you always think about like the legacy of that show and how people were instantly trying to like figure it all out. This isn't, like, as enigmatic, I don't think, by any stretch. But it has, to me, like, that similar sense of objects starting to have importance because he recognizes that, like, there's a connection between them. Yeah, to me, it's yeah. it's the intrigue cue. It mm-hmm. cues your intrigue with, with either objects or moments shared between characters. Um, and whether or not they say something or whether or not, you know, Beehive hairdo holds up a paperweight. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, the lead actor is Griffin Dunn, I believe. What mm-hmm. do you think of him? I don't know. I think that he was the perfect person for this role. But if you're asking me, what do I think of him? I don't know. I think that I might not like him much as a performer in a lot of other senses, but I think that he was perfect to bring this world to life and, and this work to life. Um, I've seen some of his work more recently. Uh, normally it's a supporting actor role. Um, I don't have any qualms with him. Um, I'd rather see Tim Rolfe in mo- most of his roles, but you know, he, he's fine. I think I completely agree with you on that where he totally did the job for me. I would not say, oh, this guy's going to go on to do great drama. Uh, no. he, he just, um, uh, fills the shoes as yeah. needed, um, and is very funny, but, um, yeah. Not the kind of performance where I thought to myself, well, I cannot see, cannot wait to see what he does next. It's more about how he kind of just fits into the environment. To me, that's that's part of that Scorsese thing where it's, he, he weirdly enough doesn't need a great lead to make a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's the normal actors that he can get the most out of, which arguably would be like a Joe Pesci, um, mm-hmm. whose acting career outside of Scorsese and My Cousin Vinny was is one of the most derogatorily spoken about acting careers that I can remember um, mm. out of the 90s. I don't remember if, if you, or I don't know if you remember some of his other work that happened in the 90s, but there's a reason why he chose to retire. It was because he couldn't replicate his immense success mm-hmm. um, as far as from what I've tracked. You know, his, mm-hmm. his public statements might be otherwise, but if you kind of just look at the the big plots on the graph, it seems pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, ah, I was about to start going off on Pesci, but I'll restrain We'll myself. save it. Yeah, tempting. So tempting. it's so tempting. So good. Um, so it, I, I guess this is the lead up to, and also referencing Joe Pesci, um, <clears throat> Sorsese might have some of the best defined worlds through supporting actors that i can think of when i think of a nolan movie he doesn't really define his world through the supporting actors 
interacting with the lead actor so much as Nolan just creates a world and then actors are in it. Normally we experience that world through the lead. Um, Spielberg doesn't rely on his supporting actors to build a world. He just kind of, you know, has a world and, and there's some great acting happening in it. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, I would put mm-hmm. in Sorsese's League, where somehow the world, maybe the Softy Brothers too, maybe the Coen mm-hmm. Brothers, this world is defined by these side characters, these supporting actors in this world. Without Catherine O'Hara, there's her name. Without Catherine O'Hara, it's not the same world. You mm-hmm. don't get to that same version of this reality. And Bringing Out the Dead, without Ving Rhames, you don't get the same world. Um and I think that's very, very interesting to to put that together and think like, can you think of a movie that he made that wasn't defined by supporting actors? You know, Silence, Liam Neeson's supporting actor. You know, he might be the the page of it, but it's Andrew Garfield that is the meat of that film. Um, the Departed, those side characters are everything. Yeah, um, I, I just I can't think of something without those side characters, even the Bob Dylan documentary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's very much uh, about a rowdy crew, for sure. Um, yeah, I would completely agree. It's usually about how our whoever our lead is, how they kind of relate to the people around them, and how um, uh, the texture is kind of made up by the people we see maybe only really briefly sometimes, especially in After Hours, like... Um, the biker couple at the bar who mm-hmm. we see making out in the background and then kind of enter the conversation, but like they're not characters exactly. Nope. Or the couple at the bartender's apartment complex who thinks yeah. he's a burglar. Or um, the person that walks up and hands him the leaflet when he's interacting with the couple at the bar. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, yeah, it definitely gives you a sense of a world beyond the frame. Um, yeah. Because, you, yeah. You, you just kind of believe that they were going to go off and do their own thing. Bikers are going to keep making out. Yep. Life will go on. <laughs> I completely agree. That's a great point. I've got a hard question for you, I suppose. I'll take an easy one. No, What's your favorite scene? My favorite scene? Oh, gosh, I don't know. It's just about how these scenes kind of add up for me. But um, I don't know. I think the best laugh I got was when he goes to the hardcore club and there's a bouncer out front there's no line to speak of and he says you know may i enter and he says no you can't or something like that and he says may i enter at a time that would be more convenient for the club uh the the sarcasticness the politeness is just super funny um i gotta laugh what about you that's interesting so for me the weird thing about this movie is it's a forsezi movie and none of the compositions are really elusive of being a favorite shot for me Mm -hmm. so my favorite shot is either when he runs up on Cheech and Chong. Oh, right. Loading, I was surprised to see them in a Scorsese movie. Loading the sculpture in the TV into the van. I, I think that's probably my favorite. It's that or when he falls out of that van. And so to me, that's the that really just speaks to the them as comedic characters in this world. And that whatever that metaphorical meaning is of that van itself in this mm-hmm. narrative. Yeah. Good scene. Should we move on to our next Scorsese? Let's bring out the dead. All right, let's do it. We have a call, Chief. Somebody's bleeding, 44th and A. Saving someone's life is like falling in love. You wonder if you become immortal, as if you've saved your own life as well. 
But taking credit when things go right doesn't work the other way. Take things way too seriously, Frank. You look like you aged about 10 years since the room with the last. Come on. Bringing Out the Dead. Written by Joe Connolly. Adapted for the f- screen by Paul Schrader. Directed by Martin Sorsese. What do we think, Michael? I did not love this one quite as much. Uh, there were some things I liked about it, but overall I was lukewarm to pretty cool on bringing out the dead. What about yourself? Very hot. 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 <laughs> Coming in hot. Not not a not a lifeless corpse of a temperature on this film. A hot, uh, non-dead. Not needing to be brought back. <laughs> the opposite of dead. Yep. Uh, <laughs> very much liked this movie. Um, it's one of... A few movies I've seen this year that um, use this vignette style where it really feels like short stories happening and there's just a character that's similar. And by the end, you feel like Nicolas Cage is your main character. But there's times in that movie where I did not feel that way. There's Mm -hmm. times in that movie where I felt like, um, gosh, was it uh, Rosanna Arquette? Which Arquette was it? It is confusing because Rosanna Arquette was in After Hours, right? Yes, Patricia Arquette is is the one here. Don't know um, if there's a relation or not. There is. They're sisters. Is there? Okay. Yeah. Um, so Patricia Arquette um, was married to Nicolas Cage in this film, or in real life, during the this uh, filming. But so, like, there's moments where I thought that she was kind of like who we were following emotionally. Um, there's moments where I thought Ving Rhames, John Goodman were who we were following. So I, I did really like that balance of telling short story vignettes on screen with the same character who's slowly going mad and how better to allow us to experience this guy going mad than to shift perspective away from him constantly. Mm. Um, and then we realize that we're back with him when we start seeing these dead people walking around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this was made before we knew about PTSD um, and I think that a lot of what this film is speaking about is to the EMT PTSD that we now know about, which is that, that you're constantly dealing with these really high highs, which are addressed in the film when Ving Rhames flips the ambulance, um, and these really, really low lows, which are depicted by every time Nicolas Cage shows up late to a shift and is promised by his dispatcher that he's going to be fired tomorrow. Um, I That just... This was a full-bodied world to me, and I really, really, really liked the uh, the direction of it. Yes. I, I don't know about you, but this does not encourage me to become a paramedic in New York City anytime soon. Nope. I've Before this, I've actually seen some of the psychological data, and I'm very thankful to those people, but I would not be well-suited to that life. That's the equivalent of being a war reporter um, based on a lot of psychological studies, so... When you come home, you are largely what's known as fucked up. (laughs) I believe it. Uh, What I liked best about it was, similar to how we described After Hours, I like just how kind of vividly realized the city is as a character in itself. Um, This is all about, you know, the people on the streets that he sees night after night dying because he can or can't save them. And it just kind of starts to feel like New New York City is a character itself that Mm -hmm. he's like convulsing with an infection and it's just getting worse. Yes. There's that shot where he's in his bedroom and he's looking out and you see the sun come up and go down and it just kind of feels like the city is going to sleep and 
coming. I, I believe this again. was written about New York also during the AIDS epidemic, mm. um, which is, you know, something to take in. But that that's a good the, the convulsions kind of of the city or around them. Um, the I to me, this film also hit that surreal level of after hours, a different mm. surreal, but, you know, one, one that's maybe more tremoring, mm. um, like Joe Pesci's hands at the end of The Irishman, mm. but also surreal like you you don't know if the people you're seeing in the street are real for me there's a point near the end when i'm convinced we're watching these um ghosts that aren't real walk past uh like a a concert that's uh a concert venue that's closed up shuttered and a girl collapses and i'm certain that it's the same ghost girl that we've been seeing the whole time and nick Mm -hmm. cage gets out and i think he's with um john goodman i think john goodman's in that scene and they start saving her and as soon as i see john goodman interacting with this girl then i know it's real but until Mm. then i don't know it's real Mm. um because we'd just been down in the alleyway where nick cage was talking to himself um before saving the addict who is known to hit things with baseball bats Mm -hmm. so it there's just there's that undercurrent of um it's surrealism but it's surrealism through faith Mm. you know they they address it a few times uh, the idea of becoming god because you're saving these people Mm. and then the just the low lows and um i I think that there is you know a savior component to this film which is just very very interesting to me yeah yeah i I do find the content pretty interesting and i have been thinking about it more than i expected to i guess based on how i kind of responded during the actual viewing which i think maybe for me just had to maybe do a tone that's maybe why i didn't respond to it as well as i would have liked to um you know one thing we get is a lot of those um you know pop songs that are playing throughout we get that in a lot of scorsese movies um that are you know upbeat relative to what we're watching um and i think for me that kind of represented the growing like what he, what Nicolas Cage his what his character sees as maybe some growing indifference to all this pain and suffering um due to a sheer kind of exasperation by people like the doctors who just feel feel ill-equipped to actually deal with it right there's a sense of like just becoming overwhelmed by it mm-hmm. that people have like um started to almost shrug like that's something that's maybe what the tone was was doing but something about this being in partly in part supernatural um i just kind of would have maybe gone for a gloomier tone as it is it felt a little like wacky at some at certain points like the the ghost i didn't i didn't love the ghost scene quite as much i like it more as an idea than than how i experienced it um like all of them hokey or something um particularly when they're coming out of the ground during that one particular sequence Hmm. interesting yeah that didn't i i didn't get hit by the weirdness of that to me that was just the manifestation of watching nick cage go crazy for Mm -hmm. two hours essentially um what about the undercurrent of the film which we haven't addressed at all which is his relationship with Patricia Arquette is built on him bringing back someone he did not want to bring back. 
mm. um, because of her. Because um, he was, you know, hearing the ghost say no. And then he was looking at the daughter um, having an emotional breakdown saying bring him back. Mm-hmm. And then that for us watching the film, that is the instigator of him going crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and beginning this downward spiral of drinking a lot and losing his mind. Um, mm. did, did that hit you at all? Um, I don't know that I thought his relationship to that guy informed his relationship with Patricia Arquette's character in a super meaningful way for me, or at least as much as it sounds like it maybe did for you. But I do... Oh, no, sorry. Maybe I said that wrong. As far as him. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, yeah, it's the subtext of the relationship they have. To me, that relationship doesn't matter. It's just a, a thing that exists because... I, I agree. Yeah. It's a victim. It's one of many victims, uh, family members who he saved. Mm-hmm. And maybe she's pretty and he likes her, but that that's secondary to him going crazy from doing something for someone mm-hmm. who's alive with someone who's dead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I do kind of like this idea maybe that he is having this kind of psycho-spiritual crisis because he is suddenly so obsessed with the lives he can't save that what this experience with one particular one particular guy means for him is learning to let go. That maybe sometimes he will not be able to save them. And that's sort of... Um, represented by this one experience with this one guy mm-hmm. um which i kind of like i mean i think like the logic i think what i kind of see i i find interesting i just wasn't that moved by it when during the actual watch what about you i i don't think that i picked up exactly the way that you just worded it but i really like that and mm-hmm. and now i'm kind of ingrating it ingratiating it with my own um but for me it was more like there's some people where when you save them they don't they're dead and they don't want to not be dead. And mm. he's arguably like the reverse murderer, but just as bad as a murderer mm. in those possible scenarios, um, mm. which to me gets to that, you know, um, philosophical debate about um, the right to suicide um, that mm. we've been going through as first world nations, you know, in the last 10, 20 years. Um, so I just, I find that very interesting the idea of a man who's lived a full life the quality of life isn't really there there's not too many good reasons for him to come back the complications for if he comes back are going to reduce his quality of life he's more loved in death than he is in life um as his daughter makes very well known um i i just i really that part really resonated with me because i think that there are a lot of people who when they die they're good you know and they don't want to come back and it's literally an emt's job to try to bring them back um and and that you know the this job that saves people's lives also might bring people back to suffering which is Mm -hmm. something that we don't really talk about yeah yeah the one thing this guy wants is exactly what cage exists to prevent from happening Mm -hmm. and he's going crazy about it yeah yeah um yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, you yeah you, you you sort of see that as the uh, catalyst to his uh, crisis for the rest of the movie, which I actually, I don't know why I hadn't even really thought of it in that sort of linear order, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
Yeah, we're kind of nicely working up from a movie that takes place over one night to a movie that takes place over three nights to a movie that's five decades long. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Nice time span. Not long here. enough, if you ask me. Word. If, if someone asks me, is The Irishman long enough? The answer is no. Good answer. I agree. Um, so, just before we move on to what we really want to move on to, um, the three supporting actors here are Tom Sizemore, Ving Rhames, John Goodman. Uh, remind me who Tom Sizemore is. The one who goes crazy and um, starts hitting his ambulance and, uh, wants him to push the, uh, the guy over, um, that has the baseball bat. You know exactly who I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Though, that is some of the best use of supporting actors to fill out a man's character, right? Because it, without them, we don't really know who Nick Cage is. It's the way that Nick Cage doesn't respond to them, because he barely responds, right? Mm-hmm. That brings out the fact that he's going crazy and is liquored up. Because with without those special interactions, they don't happen. Mm-hmm. And when Ving Rhames does his um his bring him back from the dead thing, while Nick Cage sticks him with the needle and starts doing that Baptist gospel thing, that was just one of the best moments I've seen in a long time in cinema like i just i had a really good time personally you have the power jesus to spare this worthless man rise up i'll be begging damn you guys are good i did very much enjoy that i was tempted to bump up a rating just merely for that scene because that was excellent things good yeah yeah it is different uh from like travis bickle and taxi driver who's you know, driving around in New York City alone, mm-hmm. um, and how here we kind of learn more about a character um, through contrast with his partners. Yes. Um, not that Taxi Driver doesn't have essential supporting characters, but, um, you know, for movies about driving around New York City. Um, kind of Written by Paul Schrader. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, two different approaches. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, let's get to what we've been waiting for. The Irishman. I want you to meet my cousin, Russell Buffalino. How are you? Hi, nice to meet you. It was like the army. You followed orders. You did the right thing. You got rewarded. A friend of ours is having a little trouble. Friend at the top. Back then, there was nobody in this country who didn't know who Jimmy Hoffa was. You gotta go! Get that gun out of his hand! You always charge a guy with a gun. With a knife, you run away. So you charge with a gun. With a knife, you run. You ready to close this out? Joe Pesci. Done. He wins. He wins the movies. All of them. We did a nice job of really leading up to this movie. Mm-hmm. Dropping nuggets here and there. So if you can't tell, I think we both really like this movie. I think we not only like this movie, but we love Joe Pesci. That we do. Uh, we will not be talking about the movie, just Joe Pesci. No, uh, we'll like, we could just talk about Joe Pesci's left hand for about mm-hmm. three hours. Notice how it holds the sleeve so it doesn't crease, and how he carries the ring. <laughs> this movie is three and a half hours long. Three and a half hours short. Thank you for that correction. You're welcome. We both managed to make it all the way through without having to get out of the theater and head to the restroom. Were you completely in it from top to bottom? 
or no? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's moments where, Hmm, that that's good. There's definitely moments where I was like, Oh, that's unit B Mm. or like they switched cameras to a shitty camera, which I brought up on the drive home with you yesterday. Um, there's some external shots particularly where they absolutely either switched camera, switched lenses, did both and also didn't use any digital layering because we basically spend, you know, let's say two hours and 15, two hours and 45 minutes with digital layering almost in every single shot. Mm -hmm. And then we go to an all external shot that isn't shot with the same lenses where it's very clearly just looks different than the rest of the film. It doesn't look right. And then it never happens again. So I don't know if that was just a pickup shot that they couldn't do anything about or, or what happened. But there was that one moment where I was like, woof. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't think I have as good of an eye for that kind of thing as you do. But I can imagine that when a movie does look as good as this one does for so much of the time, that when there is maybe a slip up, it's maybe all that more noticeable. Noticeable, yeah. Because yeah, this is soaring. This is doing magic, right? Like, how long has it been since you spent three and a half hours listening to dialogue smiling? I know. I There's a lot of dialogue in An Elephant Sitting Still, but I wasn't smiling through that movie right? exactly. Kind of doing the opposite. Yeah. That movie kind of makes you want to cry. And, and like, the, the dialogue isn't... It's just not the same. It's not mm. the same subtext to dialogue. There's not the same playfulness. There's not Harvey Keitel in the background almost never saying a word silent to the point where you forget he was even one of the main characters of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's pretty riveting dialogue for the most part. I would confess that like there are plenty of like nuances to the mechanics of all the wheeling and dealing that I didn't like necessarily follow. And I was totally fine with that. Like you, you get the gist of things or I did at least the envelopes being passed. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you're making reference to. Well, that, and just, I don't know, you know, when there are a dozen Italian names and the mobs and, uh, you know, becoming more intermingled with politics and business, there's just a lot going on Mm -hmm. in three and a half hours. Like, the Teamsters I would Union. fail if I tried to recap the plot in detail right now. I could not do that. Uh, so I don't think we should do that. I can recap the plot. A guy who drives a truck and has uh, pieces of cow then steals those pieces of cow and gives them to another character who I believe is called Razor's Edge. Oh, is I forgot correct? about the nicknames. Um, and he is played by Bobby Cannavale. And then Cannavale introduces him um, to a lawyer when he gets caught for stealing, who is played by Ray Romano, who is brothers to Joe Pesci. And then Joe Pesci eventually gets him a job working with Jimmy Hoffa. And then he has to kill Jimmy Hoffa at the end of the film. And that's the film. I think that's a fair synopsis. Okay. (laughs) So was it mostly um, character story, the production, any particular quality that you were or aspect you were particularly drawn to, or was it just you know how how they all come together? The quality of narrative through all the ways that the art form works, um, 
you know, other than my gripe that I just brought up about the whatever happened in that one spot at like 2.45 in, um, the the way that the wives would walk away to have a cigarette and we'd see them talking and they're talking way more than Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro, but we don't hear any of it. The way that the the daughters don't talk, the importance of that single conversation he has with his adult daughter near the end, um, the the way that Harvey Keitel doesn't talk. Um, you know, I what I was dumbfounded by was I realized on my drive home after I drove you home that you didn't look at me and say, God, if it wasn't for the narration for the mm. first time, that's like the first time we've watched a movie with narration that you didn't complain about. It's true. I did not mind it at all. I thought it was um, pretty effective for me here. Um, so. so there's, yeah, there's definitely no logic to my like or dislike of voiceover narration. That's for sure. Um, I think there is because this is a great movie. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's uh, kind of funny. I have been trying to, um, like reconsider at Astra, not to change the subject here, but just for a brief detour. I think I'm just so used to voiceover in certain kinds of movies, like noir, like crime films, that when I get it in something like sci-fi, I think it's maybe just a little jarring. I think hmm. that was maybe it. It was just partly expectations that I expected something so cerebral, so kind of like Tarkovsky-like that the narration was so explicit that it just caught me off guard. I'm maybe trying to walk back, walk myself back on that and be more, more open to it in that case. Um, Am I correct in remembering The Lost City of Z had narration as well? That kind of sounds right. Or do I just feel like Charlie Hunnam talked to me? That seems very possible. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe it was the son who was narrating. I can't remember, but I feel like there was a level of narration to that picture. Yeah. Um, I I mean, I think there's, relative to dialogue, like the voiceover narration to dialogue ratio, I think is lower here than in Casino, where there's like a lot of yeah yeah here it's just um i i think it's also the introduction right it's the princess bride effect Mm -hmm. of starting the movie with the narration inside of the timeline of the movie itself Mm -hmm. now in princess bride you know it's not really in the timeline of the movie because it's a fictional movie being told by a grandfather to a grandson Mm -hmm. But it, the the nature of it being in the in the film is still there. You yeah, know, there is there is a device being directly that we addressed. Yeah, yeah, that, um, that cemented it. Um, I mean, we've done enough dancing. Joe Pesci, excellent. Joe Pesci, he really is. Joe something else. Pesci. This is. I can't think of another supporting role since like, and you know you can call me a film bro all you want but like this is my favorite personally since Heath Ledger oh I like that I've, I've been thinking about it all morning and I'm just like when was the last time a supporting actor just took me this much mm-hmm. um, and and it's because of the quietness and the brutalness mm-hmm. of who Joe Pesci has to be um, and, and then it's also by remembering that he can't get out Mm-hmm. He's he's stuck too in that term that I've forgotten now. Your two word term from after hours. Oh, existential entrapment. Yes, that's that is exactly applicable to him though, right? Because I I imagine in his old age he must have some regrets, some mm. preferred alterations to his way of living, but there's nothing he can do. He is in too deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, in a crime epic with explosions and executions 
there's still nothing that feels more dangerous than some of the scenes with this old man, this relatively small, wrinkly old man. Having um, quiet conversations. Yeah, his gaze can be as piercing as anything else. Um, And it just is so well balanced with him wanting that affection from the kids, which is also very funny, Um, but also really sad. I think how the kids are integrated here is just fascinating because I didn't feel like we ever really see things from the perspective of the kids, but we definitely see them watching and looking and gazing at the mobsters and you intuit what they're thinking. Um, Which to me is awesome because what's the title of the movie? The Irishman. So we're seeing their, their, them living their lives from his perspective. And he's clueless. Now you and I, we get to sit there and stare and wonder. So we're not clueless. We don't have to go think about blowing up that that laundromat joint over over in, uh, gosh, where was that? Delaware. Mm-hmm. That he does at two in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, man, it's just, it's a special movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of running on that idea of perspective especially because of how long it is after a certain point like i just feel like i'm so kind of enmeshed with the mob that it's not that i became like desensitized to the violence but there's to some extent like you just start to understand how ordinary it is for them Mm -hmm. typical and just non-feeling it you know they do it with uh like it's just instinctual and those moments when you do suddenly see the kids watching we suddenly kind of get that third-party perspective. Um, the grocery. Easy to, yeah, yeah. Is our introduction to that? Um, I think that's where the runtime really comes into play, is in getting us so intimately in with the mob that it's then all the more startling when we see it, these kids watching and being so terrified that they don't want to approach their dad because they don't know what he'll do to their teacher who you know, gave him a bad grade or something like that. I think that's just really um, effective stuff. Yeah, I, I think that there's also a duality in play between Pacino's Hoffa and uh, Pesci's. Gosh, I don't actually know his character's name. Is it Buffalini? Buffalini, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Because he's yeah. Ray Romano's brother, and yeah. it's the Buffalini brothers. Yeah, um, yeah. Th- so there's there's something happening where because Joe Pesci actually has all the power, which is best illustrated by him making. Not making, but making De Niro go kill Hoffa, who was not only his employer, but his friend. Um, Against his will, he goes and, with his willpower, murders Hoffa. And it's not because Pesci says he has to. It's because Pesci says some noises about this is the work that needs to be done. And then he gets on a plane and goes and does it. Mm -hmm. Whereas Hoffa is this big, blustery character and in the end, he had no power. Mm-hmm. And and that just makes Pesci more formidable, more interesting. Um, and, and it makes for De Niro's character to, to be more in the middle. It really does feel like, in retrospect, watching a working man's uh, cartoon with an angel and a devil on each shoulder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Pesci seems like he's dressed up as an angel, but is the devil and Hoffa seems like he's dressed up as the devil but as an angel at some level yeah yeah I kind of suspect it's going to 
stick with me in a pretty big way, partly just because I don't know that I have really figured these guys out in a lot of ways. Like, you know, I said, like, we kind of become used to the violence in a, in a, in a way it just be, you know, we start to understand how it's ordinary for them. Um, but it is troubling, right? This is very violent. Um, we're seeing these guys, but that's the thing. I agree with you. It's not troubling. That's the weird thing about the way that it's depicted. It's not depicted with, gravitas i guess Mm -hmm. like it there is no lingering on the sadness of the dead face there's just Mm -hmm. a dead face yeah which is how they see it yeah which feels right um and it's so it's so weird in the cinematic language to see that yeah it's partly about how when frank de niro's character goes to kill hoppa or is at that party just after getting the remark from Pesci's character that we might need to uh, off this guy. He clearly doesn't want to do it. There's clearly hesitation. He's truly, he clearly wants Hoffa to change his behavior. Um, And then at the end, that conversation with the priest, where the priest is wanting him to express some kind of regret, some kind of remorse. um, And he, he says he doesn't have any. And I really kind of believed him when he said that. Um, I don't know that I have figured out just um, who this guy is exactly. Not who he is, but um, how exactly he is sort of in proce- processing and internalizing like what he has done. Because given his hesitation, I would have expected him to express some regret. And that he doesn't, um, I think is kind of fascinating. Like he, It makes him a more troubling character for me, for sure. Um, Interesting. But, uh, I, don't, I don't know quite what to do with him yet. What do you, do you find him, to what extent do you find him sympathetic versus He doesn't become more troubling for me. The exposition is a troubling exposition. He's a thief. He's a murderer. Um, But he's also a man who fought in the World War for lots of combat days. We get a flashback to him shooting Italians into a grave after they dig the grave. And then he's going to work for the Italians to kill more Italians. Um, There's just... It's it's not that it's not morally rich. It is very morally rich. But it's not morally troubling for me to to see someone who's a victim of machinations bigger than them. And the way that I perceive the biological outcomes of those. Um, Mm. You know, he lived in a time that was you're either going to to work and get ahead or you're not. And his opportunities in that part of of Eastern United States were very limited and almost everything was mob controlled um, from what I've heard from other stories. Um, so you were either going to work and pay the mob or you were going to be the mob. And either way, you were, you were probably going to be exposed to death. And he had already been paid to be a death dealer. Um, so... I, I think that the lines get screwy and there's no way to predict it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I think the history of him as a war veteran definitely helps to explain why he might have this kind of indifference to life or death and who lives and who dies. It's maybe just about how hesitant he is to do it. Like, um, that carry he did become orders. something like a, like a friend to him. Um, it's just interesting to me that I really didn't see any real remorse that I, I I thought there would be some kind of um, shred of it, some sliver. I, I really didn't see it there. Um, 
which is just interesting. Maybe it's just about time and how he was hesitant because he had become friends with him. But that feeling of indifference after what he's been through is just so powerful that he just kind of reverts back to that default in the long run. And and he thinks no regrets because we're all dead anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, It is kind of nihilistic some degree but I, I think that it's the the way of life of it though like how could he how could he regret it when he didn't really have a way of knowing what what would happen and if he would have known what would happen would he have done any any different um yeah to, to me it's not it's i just maybe don't view it quite the same it's very morally rich but that era in and what they had to do in going to war and seeing that death um, made it so that when they came home, why wouldn't you kill your direct enemy Mm. at some level? Like um, these, because of that military personality that they would have developed, right? It's like your commander is giving you an assignment. You're friends with these guys because they're your prisoners of war, essentially the Teamsters Union. Um, but you know, now they're too uppity and, and we have to kill them. And even though you're close and you've been bringing them his water while he's been in his, uh, prison cell all day or for years, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. and you had the first detail and it was a great job for you. He was still just a guy in a, in a jail cell. To me, that's maybe how I see it where it's, um, you know, Hoffa sees his office as this great towering achievement. And to me, the way that Sorsese depicted it in the film, it was more of a jail cell. Mm. It was this thing at the top of a building that really just looked like a like a gr- kind of gross federal building at some level. Like it was impressive, mm-hmm. but it was also just kind of gross and institutional. Um, yeah. And he was there because other people wanted him to be there and then they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lots uh, there for me to chew on. Um I will say, to change the topic slightly, I think I spent less time thinking about Scorsese's other gangster movies. Um, and I did think a little bit about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't know if you mentioned that just as a separate point of comparison last night or if you actually thought of that mm-hmm. too. But, yeah, I did. Um, one uh, interesting detail is that each time we meet a mobster here, um, where we get a title card telling them how they end up dying, which is probably, or it, 95% of the time is by getting shot by another mobster. Multiple um, times in the face. Yeah. And that's not totally unique to the Irishman in Casino. You know, you see Robert De Niro in scene one getting blown up. But to me, knowing um, how so many of these people end up, which is either killing each other or getting thrown in jail, um, has a similar effect to how knowing the fates of characters in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood kind of felt, which mm-hmm. is just that kind of elegiac quality. Yes. Um, had I not seen those title cars, like I just wouldn't have looked at Al Pacino eating an ice cream sundae the same way, or Bobby Cannavale eating a steak, mm-hmm. or De Niro and Pesci eating a, lo- a loaf of bread. If you can't tell, I think food is kind of an interesting motif here. Yes. Um and it makes some of the grievances between them feel even more petty in a way. Um, and it's, it's, it kind of leads to this question, like, if 
if what you enjoy so much are the simple pleasures in life, like an ice cream sundae, like the affection of your kids, why do this all? Like it's it's um, you're you're gonna kill each other before um, you get to see your kids enjoy the same things. Um, I think that's the lesson of yeah. the movie, though, right? I th- yeah yeah exactly. Um, and and I it's like that it. the kids growing up in that environment are the ones that passed on that knowledge mm. essentially. Um, and the transference of that, right? Because now it's, you know, if someone is a gangster, we kind of, you know, are worried about them. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a term of endearment. It's a term of, well, number one, don't associate with them. And number two, try not to know them at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas I mean, then yeah. it was try to make them your best friend. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How else are you going to get money? How else are you going to guarantee that your jewelry business in the neighborhood continues to prosper you know maybe you got to hit your kid and tell him that he needs to sell jewelry differently and deal with customers better but yeah yeah um and to caveat like i wouldn't necessarily liken these guys to someone like sharon teat obviously who is just an innocent right it's it's more complicated here because these guys are doing some terrible things mm-hmm. um and i think it still leaves you feeling somehow kind of elegiac and i think that becomes a little inextricable from the age of the actors and just the baggage they bring you know that it kind of feels like a curtain call even though i don't think scorsese's done by any means no Um, but it's definitely i would go so far as to say it's definitely a curtain call on this run this team this group this run of of kaitel of pacino of de niro of pesci having something to say about the american experience and and the evolution of america directly um through from their era i think they have a lot more to say and a lot more working together to do but i don't think that they'll make a more profound statement than they've made in their previous teamings and in this one yeah yeah and uh well could could complain about the the runtime but like spend this much time with the actors this good Mm -hmm. that is not a problem for me In in a narrative that is this well driven by dialogue um yeah it's it's special yeah and it begins unassumingly it ends unassumingly um there's it's a it's a deeper work on on the the natural death of life and whether or not what we did you know, even in those terms matters, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not the morals really matter or if it's just about those moments of eating good food with your friend, even mm-hmm. if you're dipping it in the good grape juice in jail. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can't have the wine. It's the next best thing. He, he needs a small piece because he doesn't have teeth anymore. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's just, yeah, th- this is a hard one to rate. I feel mm-hmm. more for it than I think critically about it, um, mm-hmm. at, at, at least right now. I, I'd like to have five hearts to give it over the five stars. Yeah, yeah. Um, favorite moment? How do you pick a favorite moment from a three and a half hour movie? But what comes to mind? Oof. That's a rough question you just asked me. Want me to go? If you have one, you can go ahead. The one that comes to mind, even though there's there's crime, there's sadness, there's all these guys, you know, maybe reaching their end. I think the 
one moment I will laugh to myself about is Al Pacino's Jimmy Hoffa describing to a courtroom how you charge a gunman, but you run from a knife. Hilarious. I think how comedy is effortlessly interwoven is great and balances the tone and just keeps you on your feet. I think mine is also a comedic moment, but a different moment with a different supporting actor named Joe Pesci. Um, It's the first moment we meet Joe Pesci, actually, in the linear timeline, um, going from back in time to forward, when De Niro um, and Pesci are pulled over with their wives on the side of the road for a smoke, and they look across and they see the Texaco station. We begin a flashback where De Niro is truck breaks down about that same spot and he has to push it over to the Texaco and he's working on it and doesn't know what's wrong with it. And this guy is, shows up, leans over the hood and asks him what's wrong and then starts checking the spark plugs. He folds his tie into his coat and covers it up. We're looking at it from the side. Pesci is taller than De Niro. He, fig- he fixes it and then it pans over and he's up on the curve, up on his tippy toes, leaning over the car to be taller than De Niro. And then when he gets off his tippy toes, he's immediately shorter, even though he's on the curb. Um, but that, that there's something that's visually communicated about Pesci's power that is also funny. Absolutely. That's like visual comedy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great moment. And from there, the rest is history. Uh, to Pesci's Oscar. To Pesci's Oscar. We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! And that's another one in the can.